and it's not so quaint like walking down streets and kicking gold nuggets in the gutter. It's nothing like that. But can you imagine an eternity of just being like God with unlimited power, unlimited resources, no more work, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more sin. Never ever displeasing your Heavenly Father again. Having the mind of God between your ears. Knowing what God's thinking. Hey, it's going to be something. I like to see Christians beginning to get starry-eyed when I talk like this. I like to see them kind of just kind of start staring off into the into the never-never land as God begins to envision in your mind what that day might be like. It kind of gets your hope built up. It kind of gets you going and thinking, Oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, come back and take us out of this thing. Grab me over in Romans chapter 8. Let's look at a few verses. Romans chapter 8. I'll look at two more passages of Scripture, Tammy, I'll answer your question for you. Romans chapter 8. The Bible says, verse 24, verse 23, and not only they, but we ourselves all which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting, waiting, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what does a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? The Bible says God set a hope before you and that hope is set there so you, though you can't see it, you'll sit and you'll patiently wait for that thing. Turn it back to the book of Revelation, the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of your Bible. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22:16, Bible says, "I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and the morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely." For I testify to every one that heareth the words of the prophet this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man take away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of, book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in the book. He, that, he which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. And then John adds, Even so come, Lord Jesus. That Bible was written, my friend, so that you would know what God's going to do. Jesus said in His own words, verse 16, I sent an angel to give you all these things so that you'd know. And He says, Hey, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me. 
and I'm going to come and put an end to all this foolishness and all this sin and all this heartache and I'm going to come and I'm going to give you what I intended for you to have in the first place before Adam sinned. I'm going to give you things your eyes have never seen, things your ears have never heard, things have never entered your heart in your wildest imaginations, the things God's prepared for them that love Him. What about the lost? Jesus answers the question in verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride, the Bride is you, that's the church, say, come. What about the lost? Come. What about the unsaved? Come. What about the deceived? Come. What about the backslidden Christians? Come. And let him that heareth say come. To those that come after Jesus and John, we should be out saying come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus Christ came, left the realms of glory, left the portals of heaven, left the throne, left the being God. You know where he was born? He was born in some cow dung in a manger wrapped in clothes meant for a dead man. Had to flee to Egypt when he was two or three years old. Across the hot desert on a camel or on a donkey and spent a portion of his life in Egypt in exile. And he came back and never ever owned a home. Never had a place to call his own. The Son of Man had a place to lay his head at night. Why? That he could say to you, come. Why? So you could be made a joint heir with Christ. Come. So that you could be taken and brought out of the grafts of hell and taken and set in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Come. That's our hope. We're there. I'm not a debt, a debt setter. I'm not a date setter. We're there. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you want to turn there, you can. The Bible says the times and seasons, brethren, I have no need to write unto you. He says, you all know the times and seasons. You know what the Bible likens the rapture to? It, raptures, it likens it to a pregnant woman. Now let's use Tammy, for example, since she is our reg re resident PG lady. Two. I, well, we got two PGs. I'll use you next time, Esther. Now, you went to the doctor several months ago, and the doctor went in there, and he came out with a big smile on his face and said, it's positive, the rabbit died. And he came to that thing, and he said, you will be due, when, when's your due date? Okay, what's the date? April 26th. Now, when you, I may have given this illustration a couple weeks ago. When he, he said that, that baby, and you said, uh-uh. No way on April 26th or in any way possible. Now, that doctor hadn't got a clue. You don't know when that baby's going to be born. Doug doesn't know when the baby's going to be born. Nobody does. Only that baby and God know when they're going to come around. Right? 
And you may get right to April 26th, and that day may come and go, and nobody knows. But I promise you, the night of the 25th, Doug will know that you're about to have a baby. I promise you, from the groaning and the moaning and the playing battleship and laying there floating on the bed, I mean the whole thing, that thing, you'll know that she's pregnant. And you'll both lay there. I remember Renee was pregnant. I mean, you know, she walked around doing this number, you know, always had her hands at the base of her back, and she walked around like this, moaning and complaining the whole time. And I said, hey, you're the one who won the baby. And, and she's moaning and complaining the whole time, walking around just, just, ha just in pain and miserable, right? Thinking she's going to bust if she had the baby. We knew the time and the seasons. Just didn't know the day and the hour. That's what the Bible says. God's given us the times and seasons. I just can't tell you it's April 26 to 3. Just like the doctor can't tell Tammy. But God said there's a pregnant lady. And she's going to bring forth. And so henceforth, we're there. We're there. I showed you that thing tonight that we got about three years. It's 86. And it's 1989 that, that the thing figures out to be. We're 1986 now. The year 2000 is when the millennium is supposed to start. That's the 7,000th year. I told you we've got seven years tribulation. That brings us to 1993. I told you our calendar is probably four years off. That brings us down to what? 1989. Now there's one, one problem. If the tribulation begins right here, the Bible says the Antichrist has got to come to power. The Bible says the tribulation begins when the Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel. In Daniel chapter 9. Now let me ask you a question. 2 Thessalonians says he cannot be revealed until we're gone. He cannot be revealed as the Antichrist until we are taken out. Now we got three years. If our count... If our calendar is right, let me do this on the tape. If our calendar is right, we have three years. Okay? I want everybody to hear that. Okay? Because if 89 comes along, I'm not going to take back what I've taught. Because if our calendar is right. Now, if he has to sign a covenant with Israel, if he has to sign that covenant with Israel, how long before he comes into power? You think he's going to get elected to office and the next day walk into Jerusalem and, 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 or to Tel Aviv and sign that covenant and walk off? I doubt it. I doubt it. You say, what do you mean? How much time when he comes to power between the time he works out the deal to sign the covenant? I'll say one thing. For the two largest nations in the world, they meet twice a year. The wheels of political uh, di diplomacy moves slowly. If it takes him a year or two years to come into power politically to sign that, that deadly covenant that Daniel talks about, hey, this could be our last night on planet Earth for a while. If it takes him three years, the Lord's late. My friend, it's any minute. 
minutes, any minute. I honestly never expected to see 86. I really didn't. In fact, honestly, it's funny as it can be, I made up my income tax return last year down here because I didn't expect to live in my house last year and I never expected to get this year's back. I honestly didn't. I'm running across things I did last year that I'm doing this year thinking, boy, I never thought I'd be here. It's real to me. He's coming. He's coming. You say, oh, come on, I've been saying that for years. We taught it in 2 Peter chapter 3. Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers died, they've been saying this. Don't be ignorant. One day the Lord's a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So Peter says, in answer to that very question. So I don't believe it. Read 2 Peter 3. Don't talk to me. Talk to God. The very question. They've been saying that for years. What did Peter say? One day is a thousand years. Don't forget it, brethren. Don't be ignorant. So what do you do? What do you do? Look up. Look up. Look up. He's coming. That's why we need to be instant. That's why we need to be busy right now. I see these young men in the room, these, these young people. And I, I've, I've dealt with so many young people. Uh, I probably probably had probably under 2,000 in, in my pastorate in the last seven years. And I've heard about every line you can hear. I've heard him say, well, Brother Dave, when I get to be 20 years old and I get all my wild oats sown, I'll serve the Lord. I even had a man in the ministry whose kid was in my class, in my department, say to me, well, unfortunately, he's sowing his wild oats now, but hopefully when he's 20 or 25, he'll come around. And I just have to shake my head and say, oh, that's a shame. For we've just not got the time. Do you realize somebody's got to be growing up when he comes? And somebody's got to be sowing the wild oats when he comes? And somebody's got to be preparing for the ministry when he comes? And somebody's got to be off training when he comes? And somebody's got to be studying their Bible to get ready to be used when he comes? Not everybody. You say, we can't come. I'm not ready to do what he wants me to do yet. Maybe you're one of the ones preparing. When I was preparing, I used to think at all time, oh Lord, I want to get the work so bad. I want to get out in the fields and labor in the, in the vineyards. But you stop and say, what if you're one of the ones that's training when I come? Praise the Lord. The goal is not to get in the vineyard. The goal is to get to heaven and be faithful when I get there. He's coming. He's coming. Two aunts, one in Fort Scott and one in Oceola, that 
you know, it just, when you get to thinking about it, it's just sad. But, um, you know, the time is short, and, and then you think about the churches that are out there that are actually leading these people, or letting them be led right on down with them, that are probably going to be here during the tribulation. I have the reputation of being a name caller, and that's fine. I don't care what anybody thinks about me, just so I'm right with my God. You know, I'm blameless. <coughs> what, I, what I do is, is write in the Word of God, think what you want to. I stand between me and my God. Paul said in Corinthians, he said, you know, you stand before your God, nobody else. I don't, I don't have anything against Presbyterians or against Catholics or against Methodists or against Pentecostals. Praise God, I got some good friends. In fact, I would dare say I've led more Catholics to Christ than anybody in this room. In fact, I know I am. I mean, I love them. But hear me. I don't mind the people in the church. I pray for them. You know what bothers me? The man up there in the monkey suit that's telling them that they're going to heaven when they're going to hell. That's what bothers me. The guy up there that's lying to them. The guy up there that's saying, if you'll eat this cookie, you'll go to heaven. That bothers me. The, 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 the guy that takes a lady like Tammy who's... Uh, so concerned about her unborn child and her kids and who takes that thing and says, if you'll let me sprinkle your baby, your baby will go to heaven. See, I, I love the people in the pew. I want to see them know Jesus. I get, it's like Julia said, I get so upset and sometimes so, so inflamed at the people that are doing the lying. And that bothers me so much. Because time short. And there's so many folks out there leading people down the primrose path that leads to hell. What did Jesus himself say? Why is the road that goes to hell? But the road to heaven is narrow and rocky and few there be to find it. Can't you figure that thing in your mind? I don't know if I got this in a Sunday school class, a little boy, whatever. I got this thing with six lane interstate. I mean, it's got the little yellow dots in the middle of the road, you know, the thing. It's got call boxes along the way. I mean, just the whole nine yards. I mean, super interstate. I mean, you pay the toll. I mean, they get the thing. The guy doesn't pick up the trash. I mean, super interstate. Six lanes one way, man. And I think of the road to heaven being some little rocky course that picks us way up the side of a mountain, up through the trees, and up by the snakes, and up past all the dangers and the hazards. And it's so easy, man, to get off of the footpath and get in the car and glide down the superhighway to hell. But that's exactly where it leads. And when you and I understand what hell is, and I mean the awfulness, I mean I could never in any, I don't even, I could never in any adjectives, even if I understood all of it, I could never in any type of English words paint a picture in your mind of the horrible, horrible thing hell is. And yet, you know what we do? Because we're polite, we keep our mouths shut and let our friends and our neighbors go there. We keep our mouths shut and let our own kin, our own family, die and go to hell. And I'm as good as anybody. You know what we do? The space shuttle. Blows up. Tragedy, wasn't it? Seven folks died from what the paper said. Most of them probably went to hell. 
if they believe what the church teaches and they went to hell. Pray hoping they're not. Let me ask you a question. Did you cry when the thing was on TV? I mean, they had that thing all about three days there. Nothing but space shuttle thing, right? They show the picture of the little kids there crying and weeping as they were. I mean, it was a sad scene. They were on the bleachers there, and they were all. They had the mom and dad of the Christine McCullough, and they had them sitting there, and they were watching the thing, and they watched it, and they watched it, and they kind of went. And their eyes got big, and it was sad. And they had a stupid TV camera on them while they watched their daughter blow it up. I mean, that's morbid. There's something wrong with that. And they went, what's going on? What happened? And they, you can see him. And then pretty soon the speaker said, there's been a malfunction, there's been a problem. And she begins bawling her eyes out. And I was sitting there in the lunchroom watching that thing. And the people around, I watched, I looked around the thing, and everybody was sitting there crying. And I'm sitting around there crying. I mean, men, women, everybody was sitting there, just tears running in their cheeks. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, boy, this is, this is sad. Right, this, there's probably been ten people since we started Bible study that have stepped out in eternity and gone to hell since we started Bible study tonight. And not one of us cried. And then a, school, a, a, a high school teacher gets blown up and we weep bitter tears. Sad. Sad. Our priorities are all wrong. Priorities are all mixed up. The real world, the thing you don't get any off tonight you learn this, the things that are real, the things that are lasting, the things that will matter in a million years are spiritual. And I promise, me, I promise you, you can land the best job in this county tomorrow and in a million years you don't remember it. You can buy the nicest car on the market, you can get a Rolls or the nicest Jaguar or get one of the marks, save the new airbag, now I don't care whatever you want to go buy. But I promise you in a million years you'll not remember that thing. But you lead somebody to Christ in a million years, you'll, that thing will be rejoicing on the throne of God. Talk to me. I've got a question. Nobody else has I was under the impression, I don't know whether I got this, where I got it, but I was under the impression that there was a, an age of, what do you want to call it? Accountability. Accountability. Is this a fact or am I all wet? Good question. I need the passage where David's baby dies. Yeah. Well, I've got a blister on my Bible turning finger and I can't turn the pages tonight. I'm looking in Chronicles. Where are you at? back to Kings, maybe there.
from at? Twelve. Twelve. Second Samuel chapter twelve. Tell a story here. King David is at war. Now any good king should be up in the front of the battle leading the army, right? Amen? Is that right? I always see him up at the front with the sword drawn and give the command and everybody drive past him. <laughs> right? You guys are dead tonight. I don't know what the deal is. And instead of David being up on the battlefront with his troops fighting the fight, he's at home in the castle, in the palace. And he ain't got anything to do and he's back at home and he goes up on the roof one day and looks out and he sees a gorgeous lady out there doing some sunbathing or taking a bath or something. And he sees her and he lusts after her beauty in his heart and he, he takes her and calls and lays with her and out of it results a pregnancy. And then because he's, he's done this terrible thing, he then takes her husband Uriah the Hittite, gives him, calls him, now get this now, he calls him home hoping that Uriah will go, be a soldier on leave go home to his wife and do a little fooling around and get him out of the pregnancy. But he goes home, Uriah comes back, and because Uriah is such a good and valiant soldier, he sleeps on the steps of the palace the whole time he's there and won't even go see his wife because he's such a loyal soldier to David. <coughs> now get this. Don't you know David, a man of God, a man who's valiant, got some principles, has taken this guy's wife and gotten her pregnant and then he brings him home to cover his sin and the guy is so loyal he sleeps on the concrete steps every night in loyalty waiting for his king's orders. So what's David do? He gives orders for him to take, to take Uriah to the front of the battle and when he gets in the front the rest of the other troops would withdraw from around him and he gets killed. I mean he's even got to go to the place and kill him. Now Turn me to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and look with me as we begin reading in verse um, 1. And the, Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men uh, in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children, it did eat of his meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man and he spared to take his own flock of his own herd to dress it for the wayfaring man that was come unto him but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. Nathan walks in the prophet of God and he walks in to see the king and can't you see it in the palace? walks in this big marble palace, big pillars, and David high and lifted up on his throne. And he walks in, he says, O king, there's a problem in Israel. David says, say on. He said, there was a rich man and a poor man in the same city. And the rich man had great flocks and great herds, but the poor man didn't have anything except one little girl lamb. 
And that lamb was so dear to him that the, the lamb came to a table and they sat there and he fed the lamb off his own plate and the lamb drank out of his own cup and it was like his own daughter. He said, he even named the lamb Fido. And he just, he just loved the lamb, just terribly loved the lamb. And there's a, 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 a traveler came through and his plane was fogged in at Tel Aviv Airport, so we stopped at the rich man's house. And instead of the rich man going out to all of his herds and taking a lamb, he went to the poor man's house and took his little pet Fido and took him and killed him and dressed him and fed him to the, fed him to the, the, the traveler. Verse 5. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He shall re restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And, David, and Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Well, that's, that's a right cross, man. Thou art the man. David just pronounced this guy's death. He just said he's going to give him four lambs and going to die for this thing. And Nathan put that old bony finger up there in David's face and said, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I appointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom. I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would, have, I would moreover have given, thee, uh, given to thee such and such things. God said, I gave you everything I could have given you. If you wanted more, I would have given it to you. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be, uh, taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thy house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Now notice before we go on. By him committing that sin with Bathsheba, in verse ten. God said you despised me. I want you to notice that thing. I want you to notice the next time you're compelled to lie or the next time you're compelled to cheat or the next time you're compelled to do whatever you do, understand you're not doing what you think you're doing. You're despising God. Now drop down with me please to um, we want to go. Let me, let, me, let me give you a little bit of uh, background here. Well, let's read on. We're just about there. Verse uh, 11. Thus saith the Lord, Because I will behold, I will rise up evil against thee out of thine own house. I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them to thy neighbors. He shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit because th by this deed thou hast, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the children also that is born unto thee, uh, surely shall die. And Nathan departed into his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife. Notice whose wife? That Uriah's wife. Well, God rubbed salt in the wound. 
And God struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. And David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted, and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him the child is dead? But when David saw his servant, servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house. And when he required, they set bread before me to eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done, that thou didst fast and weep for the child while he was alive? But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, Get it. While the child was, I was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. What? I shall go to him. But he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her, and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. David goes through this great agony. I mean, he could have killed these guys for telling him his son died. He got up, washed, and said, why should I fast? I go to him now. The principles taught us there in Scripture, Sam, the children are covered by the blood of Christ. Now, technically, this child wasn't under the blood of Christ. He went to Abraham's bosom and so forth. But the point being, there comes an age with, 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 with a young man or a young lady when they come to the place where they understand their sin. Where they understand that their sin has separated them and their God. Where they understand that their sin is going to send them to hell. And they make a conscious decision, I want Jesus or I don't want Jesus. And that's the point that that child becomes accountable for his own sin. My own life, I was about five, six, sitting in the Kansas City Baptist Temple one day, Truman Dollar, or maybe Zimmerman was, Zimmerman was preaching, I guess. And I was sitting there, and I can remember the message, the sermon went through, and the, the invitation came, and I was sitting there as a young, young lad under conviction, and the Holy Spirit of God began dealing with my heart about my sin. And I raised my hand that I was not saved. And I remember a lady came and took me, as they used to do in those days, and asked me if I wanted to go forward. And I went down the aisle with her and prayed and didn't really understand what was going on. And about six months later, in November, um, sitting in my uncle's church, who I hope you're going to meet this year, sitting in my uncle's church, as he preached a message, sitting on the third row on the right side. Remember he preached the message and I have no idea what he said that morning. But the Spirit of God and the invitation got a hold of my heart. And I raised my hand and said, Mom, can I go get saved? She said, No, you may not. 
and I walked down that aisle that day and my aunt took me back in a little room on the left side back up in the front and little room had chairs about this high table about this high and little blocks and things and she sat there and at, across that little table from me and she took those blocks and things explained to me how that Jesus Christ had come and died and taken my sin away and that Sunday morning I asked Jesus Christ to come to my heart it was a period of about six months that God began teaching me and revealing to me that I was a sinner and as my young mind began to grow and began to began to come around I, I come to the place where I realized that I needed a savior now you say what if you had died between that first and that second time only God knows what would have happened but I really believe the first time I heard the gospel and understood it that I accepted Jesus Christ let me say that let me say this you may say gosh you got saved that young you say, gosh, you, you were yeah, just a little tight when you got saved. Hey, praise God. Amen. That's the way God, that's the way it's supposed to be. You see, if I'd gotten up and gotten to be 10, 11, 12, 14, 15 before I got saved, hey, I'd had a lot of, lot of spilt milk under the bridge. I'd had a lot of things, a lot of problems. You know what God's program is? God's program is for a godly man and a godly woman to in love conceive a child and that child be grazed in the admonition of the Lord and when that child comes to the place of his understanding where he can understand the difference of his own accountability for sin that then Jesus Christ come into that young man's life, that young lady's life at a tender age and then begin to draw them and change them as they're young and moldable so that when they get to the age where there's problems the Spirit of God's been in their life for many many years when I got to the age of 15 or 16, I've been a Christian 10 years already. I had already been in a place where I had known Jesus Christ and already had, had learned some things from His Word and already had, had seen a relationship with Him. See, that's the way God intended it to be. God doesn't, God doesn't want people to, to grow up and go out into the world and stray and Him have to bring them back as the prodigal son, beatered and tattered and torn, having spent their inheritance. But he wants the one to stay at home and labor with the Father and get the ring and get the inheritance. And that's God's program. So there reaches an age, and it's different depending on the maturity of the person. Uh, I, I have a friend that swears up and down. He got saved when he was four. Praise God. He can figure it out when he was four. I'll tell you one thing. Jonathan's getting close. I mean, Jonathan will walk up to me and he'll say, Dad, what's heaven like? welcome me and say, Dad, what does Jesus think when I'm a bad boy? He'll say, Dad, what's hell? And I don't know how long it'll be before my little boy comes to know Jesus Christ. But it'll be, it'll be one of these days soon. And I just pray that, that, like I said one time, that there's no gap between the time reached accountability that he doesn't get saved. That, that rapture might occur in that time and him go to hell. And yet, there's a time that in God's will, it'll take a young child and draw him to that young child, that young child himself, and love him and nurture him up and then nurture in the admonition of the Lord and love that young one. And every day, Jonathan goes through that thing with Jesus Christ and he's asked some profound questions. He's asked some questions that took me a second to figure out how to answer him. And it's amazing, that little mind, how sharp it is at such a young age. 
but the question he has to understand is I have to bear my own sin and go to hell or Jesus can bear it and when that little mind of his comes to a place where he can fully understand that he then might will be responsible for his own sin before God and that's mistakenly or properly called the age of accountability when one reaches the age where they're accountable for their own sin not a lot in the Bible about it not a lot in the Bible about it David gives us an example here that God takes those young people and let me say this I, I probably should get my throat cut for saying this I believe abortion is wrong but one reason I don't get upset and don't pick it well there's many reasons don't get upset and we don't make a big deal in this church about it and I believe it's wrong we say that again but I'd rather see that little baby be aborted at five or six weeks of age in the womb than to grow up as an agnostic and die and go to hell you see if a Catholic comes to us and says and again this is no slam on that church please understand that if a Catholic comes to me and says, hey, let's you and me go together and pick at the abortion clinic in Clinton, do you realize I may go up there because the Bible says it's sin, and he may go up there for a different reason, but we go together. He would go up there to get that baby alive so we can raise him to be a Catholic. I'd be going up there to keep that baby from being murdered, or whatever the word you would call would be, and yet, you see, we have different, different terms and different reasons for what we do. There's an interesting thing if you watch the world. Do you notice in the world, in the, the countries in the world that do not have Christianity or Christianity is a very, minor, very much a minority? Do you ever watch like India, for example, where most of the country is Hindu or Buddhist? Do you realize they have such a high infant mortality rate? Did you ever stop to wonder why? You say because they're poor. Well, that didn't happen by accident. God in his mercy takes a lot of those little Hindu babies home. They want to die and burn in hell for eternity. You say, why are they poor? They've forsaken the book. Do you realize, I believe it's James called Thaddeus? was a missionary to India one of the twelve apostles do you realize in 60 AD one of the twelve apostles was in India preaching the gospel they said no to God no to his son and no to his word you know what happens when America keeps printing all the new NIVs and new ASVs and AVs and everything, or NSVs and everything they print? You know what's going to happen to us? We're going right down the whirlpool of the toilet with them. And God's going to turn his back on America and is turning his back on America just like he has on England, just like he has on all those countries. Why? They've forsaken his book. And so God in his mercy, Sam, somehow works that thing out so that all those little babies don't end up going to hell and burning, growing up to be a Hindu without hope, without God, without life. He's some kind of God when you begin looking at the world from God's point of view. How God must work around in Mongolia and how God must work in these different countries pleading with men to know Jesus Christ 
in what he must do as those Hindus take their babies over there in the river and sacrifice them to Allah and throw their babies alive in the water and watch them drowned, giving their baby to God. See, God's got a purpose for that thing. And then you say, I don't believe that. They do it. They do it. Throw them in a river at Mecca. Watch them drown, giving their babies to, to Allah. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Anything else? Very, very solemn bunch tonight. It's been a very sober meeting, hasn't it? It's taking on each week. These things have their own personality. Huh? Amen. I'm glad to hear that. Amen. Amen. Shemais. It's two kings. Those kings want you. One king gave his son's life that you might be in his kingdom. That you might be his son. The other king's out to trick you and shaft you and pull the wool over your eyes and anything he can do. And these two kings are battling back and forth. And, the, and by the way, I want you to know that I, I cheated and I read the last chapter of the book and I know which king wins. And the winning king is about to say enough is enough and clean this mess up. And he's looking at his watch saying, it's time. And when the bell goes off, he's coming. He's coming. And until that time, he says, come. If you thirst, come. And I'll give you the drink of the water of life freely. Come. And we say tonight as we close, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let me just take a second and ask the question. Are you here tonight? and maybe not sure of your eternal destiny? Are you here tonight and not certain if you're going to be a worm in hell, wiggling and floating up and down in the fire, gnashing your teeth, or not sure if you'll be a son of God? You say, I made a profession years ago. Well, praise the Lord. But if you're not sure, you can know tonight for sure. Maybe you're already 